Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. And again, the theme all along has been the body life. The body life. You are the body of Christ. And Paul is teaching us about how that body is to function in the house of God. We're looking at Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 16 this morning. And the title is, Be Imitators of God. And again, the title comes right out of the Word of God. Be imitators of God. Paul now calls for the Ephesians to live like the Christian. To live like Christians. To live a life that matches their new nature. Be imitators of God. And we're to be imitators of God in everything that we do. Because you are His dear children. As we'll see in verses 1 and 2. Notice 5, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And he starts off, Therefore, be imitators of God. Right off the bat. Be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The believer's walk is important to Paul. Paul said that our walk is to be a worthy walk, chapter 4, verse 1. It was to be a different walk, chapter 4, verse 17. Paul said we're to walk in the light, in chapter 5, verse 8, and to walk in wisdom, in chapter 5, verse 15. Now here, he exhorts believers to walk in such a way that their daily life is known by their love. And notice it says, therefore... He begins chapter 5 with therefore. The therefore takes us back to the last part of chapter 4 that we studied last week, especially verses 31 through 32. Walking in love ties in with chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. That's walking in love. They are attributes of God, who is love. God is infinitely kind infinitely kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And the only way we can have those attributes is by imitating the source. Now we get our word mimic from the word imitator. It's something it's somebody who imitates. It's somebody who copies certain traits of another person. And because we are imitators of God, Christians are to mimic God's traits. And and, and we're to do that more than, and more than anything else, we're to mimic His love. The whole Christian life is mimicking the life of Jesus Christ. And God's purpose is salvation, uh, in salvation, is to save men from sin and to conform them to the image of His Son, Paul said in Romans 8, 29. But in order to do that, to, to, to mimic all that Christ is, You have to know what God is like. In order to know what God is like, you have to study His Word. Because that's where He tells us all about Himself. But the more we learn about God's character, the more we learn how we don't even come close to it. And how impossible it is for us to fulfill the command to be like Him. To be absolutely perfect like He is. It's natural for children to imitate their parents. And 
How many of you can go back and remember your kids when they were small and you were doing something, you turn around, they were doing exactly what you were doing or trying to do, imitating you. They watched you. They watched us. And they do things that, that we would do, good or bad. So we would always have to be careful, you know, what we were doing because they're mimics. They would, you know, try to do exactly what we would do. So, again, it's natural. And, and because he's forgiving, all right, we're to be forgiving. Because our Heavenly Father is holy, we're to be holy. Because our Heavenly Father is kind, we're to be kind. Because God in Christ humbled himself, we're to humble ourselves. Because God is love, we are to walk in love. So we're to mimic him in everything, in all of his attributes. But as we know, it's not easy. Why? It's not natural for us. It doesn't come natural. That's why we need a new nature. And that's why we need the everyday, never-ending power of the Holy Spirit working in us so that we obey God's Word. The greatest proof of love is undeserved and unlimited forgiveness. The greatest display of, love, of God's love was when He gave His only Son to die for our sins. God's love brought forgiveness to man. And because forgiveness is the greatest proof of God's love, it will also be the, the, the surest proof of our love to others. Love will always lead us to forgive others, just like love led God to forgive us in Christ. There's no better way to prove a hard, loveless heart than to be unforgiving. There's no better way to prove a hard, loveless heart that's that, that, you know, uh, than unforgiveness. Forgiveness always proves love is present because only love has the reason and power to forgive. How much, how much love we have is based on how much we've been forgiven, how much we forgive. It doesn't matter what another believer may do to us, no matter how terrible or, un, or, or hurtful or unfair. Jesus paid the debt for that sin too. So there was, never, there was never one that was treated as terrible or hurtful or unfair as Jesus Christ was. So no matter how others may disappoint us, slander us, persecute us, or harm us, their sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, you say, Christ's sacrifice was enough to pay their penalty. When you want revenge, you're sinning. And you're letting selfish hatred control you and your sin by disrespecting Christ's sacrifice for sin that he's already paid for. Jesus paid the penalty for every sin. That's why we don't have the right to hold any sin against anyone, not even against an unbeliever, because Jesus paid the penalty for every single sin. Now, how deep is your love for God? That's what we all have to ask ourselves. How deep is our love for God? Because God has shown us how deep his, is, his love is for us by showing us how much He's forgiven us. The depth of our love is shown by how much you forgive others. How you love is also shown by how much you uh, know that you've been forgiven. You see, he forgives, in, he forgives in love because his heavenly Father has forgiven in love. And he wants to be an imitator of his Father. 
Our example for Christian living is Jesus Christ. Biblical love is not some feel-good, syrupy emotion. It's not some feeling for someone. It's a sacrificial giving of yourself for their good, regardless of who they are, what they've done, regardless of how you feel. Biblical love is unconditional. Biblical love depends totally on the one who loves and not because the person deserves it, not because of their attitude, not as because of, of the, the way that, that they're behaving. It has to do with you and what God has commanded you to do. If you're a Christian, you are, you're, not, you're not asked to love or to feel like loving. You're commanded to love. If you're a Christian, you're commanded to love the way God loves. And Jesus said, a new commandment I have given you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. No, it's a new commandment I have given you. John 13, 34 and 35. He says, I am commanding you to love one another as I have loved you. Now, you might say, well, wait, if, if I love somebody because I'm told to, aren't I being a hypocrite? No, you're being obedient. You see, you'd be a hypocrite if you pretended that you really meant it. Because we're in Christ, it's now our nature to love just like it's God's nature to love. Because His nature is now our nature. And for a Christian not to love is to live against his own nature as well as against God's nature. It's sin and willful disobedience of God's command and ignoring His example. The Christian's walk in love is to every person every believer, and even the unbeliever. When Jesus died for us, it was an offering. It was a sacrifice made to God. It was a sweet-smelling aroma, Paul said. A sweet-smelling aroma to his heavenly Father because that sacrifice showed in the best way God's kinds of love. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. On 15, 13, to lay down their life. You're to lay down your life for others as Jesus laid down his life for us. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. These are common sins of believers today. But Paul says Christians should never be involved in sexual sins of any kind. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, for this is the will of God. He's going to tell you what the will of God is. Your sanctification, that is you being set apart. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each of you should know, notice, should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So if you reject the word of God, and especially here what Paul just said, you're rejecting God. You're not rejecting man. Christians should never be guilty of filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting. The word filthiness is obscenity in general. Any talk that's degrading, any talk that's disgraceful, in me, and any talk that's, that, you know, it, it means dirty speech. Shouldn't be involved in any talk that's, that's dirty speech. But instead, instead of being involved in any kind of sexual sin or filthy talk, the believer's mouth should be busy thanking God and praising Him. And if we're known for anything, it should be for loving God and others by continuous thankfulness. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice, in everything. In everything. This is a tough thing to do. To love, to thank God in everything. But it's a divine command. It's easy to thank the Lord for some things, but not everything. But if you look close enough, you can find reasons to thank God in everything. Paul warns us here that filthy language does not belong in the believer's mouth because it doesn't reflect God's holy presence in our life. How can we praise God Tell others about his goodness when they hear us using foul language. When they hear us cussing. God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. God's words should not depart from our mouth. James speaks about the tongue in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. Sometimes it, he's speaking of the tongue, sometimes it, the tongue, praises our Lord and Father. And then sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. What he's saying, the same mouth cannot bring forth praises of God and foul, foul language. Look at verses 5 through 7 now. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. God does not take sin lightly. 
God does not play around when it comes to sin. It will be punished. Sin has no place in the family of God. Sin has no place in his kingdom. And these people that Paul are describing here by the sins, verses uh, mentioned in verses 3 and 4, they have no inheritance, it says, in the kingdom of Christ and God. No person, Paul says, who practice a life of immorality, impurity, and greed can be a part of God's family. Because this kind of a person cannot belong to God. We need to take that serious. Every person who's saved is instructed by the Holy Spirit and led by his new nature to give up sin and to follow after righteousness. The person whose everyday life pattern doesn't show that the Holy Spirit is leading their life, they can't say that God is their father. Or that the kingdom of Christ and God is their inheritance. They can't say that. Paul said in Romans 8, 14, for as many as are, notice, led by the Spirit of God, these, emphasis on these, are the sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the ones who are sons and daughters of God. Romans 8, 14. Paul said in Romans 8, 9, and 10, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, Dwelling in you, you are not a child of God. You're not His. Paul warns the people, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody tell you sin is tolerable. Because it will exclude unrepentant sinners from His kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11 says this. Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't, isn't an exhaustive list of sins. You know, there are many others. But he's listing here, these in particular... He says, now out of these sins, he just he said, and such were some of you. Notice, past tense. Past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, wrong living will keep you out of the kingdom of God. God doesn't play. Wrong living will keep you out of the kingdom of God. And it's because of the sins listed here and the lies of, of empty words that it says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who disobey God, the wrath of God comes upon them. These people here are called sons of disobedience because it's their nature to disobey. And they are children of, of wrath inviting God's judgment upon them. So Paul is saying, don't take part in these sins with them. Don't join the world in its sin. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't be partners with them in their sin. Be partners with Jesus in righteousness. Do not mimic the world, mimic God. Like dearly loved children, he said in verse 1. 
Look at verses 8 through 10 now. Notice, for you were once darkness. Again, past tense. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Here Paul compares what every believer's life was like before they were saved. Before they were saved. So Paul is comparing what every believer's life was like before they were saved with what God intends it to be like after they were saved. He compares, he compares the before and the after. Before they were in a state of ignorance. But a person who's been delivered from sin should have no more to do with that past life and should live like the saved and should live like they're a cleansed child of God. And then Paul uses uh, some more biblical figures, figures. He uses darkness and light to make his point. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul said that we used to be dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once Notice, all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the uh, desires of the flesh and not of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Past tense. You once walked according to the course of the world. You, you, you once were sons of disobedience. You were by nature children of wrath. But now we've been born again. Now that we're born again, our dark lives are history. We don't live in darkness anymore. We were in darkness before we came to Jesus Christ. We had no light. We were children of darkness. We were sons of disobedience, Paul says. Past tense. But what we are now, we are light in the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's moved us into his son's kingdom. And because we are now partakers of Christ's divine nature, Peter says, we share in his light. Because Jesus is the light of the world, we're also the light of the world. Because we're in the Lord. We, who were once children of darkness, are now children of light. And that's how we should walk. In verses 9 and 10 here, Paul gives the characteristics of the children of light, which are called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in, a, in better Greek manuscripts, they read, have fruit of the light, not fruit of the Spirit. They have the fruit of the light rather than the fruit of the Spirit, like we have in the, uh, in the King James Version. There are three big differences or, uh, or fruit of being children of light. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Signs of true faith. Signs of a true saving relationship with Jesus. You can't do these things in the flesh. The word all here reflects the perfection of God's standard. It says all goodness, all righteousness, all truth. All goodness here means that which is basically right. Free from defects. Beautiful and honorable. It refers to what's pleasant, useful, suitable, or worthy. All righteousness, 
first deals with our relationship to God. But righteousness also has to do with how we live. Those who are made righteous are commanded to live righteously. And then all truth. All truth has to do with honesty, dependability, trustworthiness, and integrity. In contrast to being a hypocrite. In contrast to being deceiving and living in the false ways of the old life of darkness. Goodness refers mostly to our relationship with others. Righteousness refers mostly to our relationship to God. And truth refers mostly to personal integrity. And if we don't bear this fruit, if we aren't showing this fruit in our life, we have no evidence that God's life is in us. This is serious stuff. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. And every person bears some kind of fruit. Those who are in darkness, they bear bad fruit. Those who are in light, they bear good fruit. So if you don't bear some fruit of righteousness in your life, you really cannot say you're a Christian. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Because where there's life, there's proof of life. The child of light produces the fruit of the light. What's the sign of a healthy life? Growth. Growth. The Christian life is, the only, is only healthy when it's growing. So here's the question you need to look at. And actually, are you growing? Are you growing? Your main concern in your walk as a believer should be continually learning what pleases the Lord. And as you obey what you learn, then your knowledge of the Lord. And his will increases and grows deeper. When you're faithful to the light, which is Christ, he gives you more of his light. Why should he, if you're not, you know, seeking his light and growing in his light, why should he give you more light? As Christians learn and as they grow in goodness, righteousness, and truth, the way you live will prove what you say you are. Children of God and light. The child of God will resemble his heavenly father. It's not trying to, 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 re, to depend on past religious experiences. Do not rely on past religious experiences as assurance of being saved. Oh yeah, I, I, I cry when I, when I sing the songs. They just get to me. Oh, I, I like the sermons because they make me feel good. I feel so at peace when I'm in church. I'm a member of a church. Don't let that be your assurance for salvation. Because it doesn't matter how exciting you get when you go to church or how warm and fuzzy you feel when you go to church. It doesn't matter how exciting or meaningful it was at the time. What's meaningful and what matters, it can only be based on, sure, on the sure evidence of fruit being produced by a spiritual life right now, and it continues to grow. Verse 11 and 12. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them. The child of light should, should not be or become involved in evil even by association. The only way we can be a, witness, be a witness to the world is to go into the world. And as you know, it won't be long before we come in contact with all kinds of wickedness. But we're never to be a part of that wickedness. Or give it a chance to take a hold in our life. If we compromise God's standards, our witness is blown. And our character is weakened. No act of unrighteousness is acceptable to God. We're not even to have contact with a fellow believer who's openly sinning. And that could even mean a family member. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14. Paul's command is simple and it's to the point. Christians are, who are to produce the righteous fruit of light are to have nothing at all to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. The Christian's responsibility is more than not taking part in the sins of the world. He's even to expose them. If we ignore it, we encourage it. and We help promote it. And the word expose here can also mean reproof, correction, punishment, or discipline. We are, to we, are to, we are to confront sin with intolerance. But when you do, you can expect to be, you know, criticized. You can expect to be accused of being legalistic, intolerant, not having love, not having grace. But I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. The man who preaches truth and applies it to the lives of his hearers will feel the nails and the thorns, and he will lead a hard life, but a glorious one. Paul goes on to say that it's even shameful to, to talk about those things that are done in secret there in verse 12. Because some things are so wicked that we shouldn't even talk about them. Because even describing them is morally and spiritually dangerous, he said. Our resource for exposing evil is in the Word of God. It's a Bible. It is light. It will let you know all that's evil. Verses 13 and 14. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So Paul invites us here, invites those who aren't children of light to come to the light, to be saved. Verses 15 and 16. See, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The Bible says that a fool is a person who says in his heart there is no God and who is morally corrupt and, and, and doing vile things. The fool is a person who lives apart from God, denying God by the way that they live and by the things that they say. And by doing these things, he becomes his own God and he turns his nose up at God. He turns his nose up at sin. And he's a fool because he pollutes everybody else with the ungodly foolishness that condemns him. So Paul's command for believers to walk circumspectly or carefully, it's based on what he's just been teaching. The word circumspectly means accurate, exact, and it carries the related idea of looking, examining, and investigating something very carefully. 
It also carries the idea of alertness. Redeeming the time, it's the idea of using our time wisely, using our opportunities wisely. And evil days, doing these things, walking circumspectly, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Evil days gives us less opportunity for doing what's right. Evil distracts and it disrupts us. And with all the evil today, we have to be more uh, responsible to use our time wisely. And that's why he says in verse 14, therefore, therefore, it, it, therefore, it takes us back to, to Paul's call for believers to walk as those who have been raised from the dead and are living in Christ's light. Christians are to walk wisely, not foolishly, because they are God's children and because they're saved through Christ's sacrifice. Only the wise walk is fitting for the child of God. Paul commands believers to walk the wise, to walk like wise men in verse 15. In wisdom and to live like the, the people that they are. In Christ we are one. We're separated. We are love. We are light. We are wise. What we should do, what we what we do should match what we are. Redeeming the time, that is making the most of it, has the basic meaning of buying, especially of buying back or buying out. And it's used to bind a slave in order to set them free. So the idea of redemption is implied here. We're to redeem, buy up all the time that we have and devote, devote that time to the Lord. We're to buy up the time for ourselves, but we're to use it for serving the Lord. And then Paul encourages us to make the most of our time right after he encourages us to walk wisely rather than foolishly. Other than purposely dis, uh, disobeying God's word, he says the most spiritually foolish thing that a Christian to do is to waste time and opportunity. To waste away his life in the little things that weren't really important and in half-hearted service to the Lord. When we walk obediently in the way of the Lord, we walk carefully, circumspectly, making the most out of our time. We take full advantage of every chance we get to serve God, redeeming our time, using it for His glory. Paul said in Galatians 6.10, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, a man should do every kind of good work that God places before him. As far as time and ability allow. Look at verse 17 as we close. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says, don't be unwise. This reemphasizes what Paul said earlier about believers not to be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That emphasis, this emphasizes more clearly his request to walk wisely. And there's an urgency to make the most of our time. The unwise believer who behaves in a foolish way tries to work apart from God's will. And they're weak and they're frustrated and they're ineffective in their personal life and in their work for God. And the only way to stop this foolishness is to find out what is God's will and then follow it. God's basic will is found in the Bible and that's where we find His perfect will. And we find sufficient guidelines for knowing and doing what pleases God. 
But the will that Paul seems to be talking about here is the Lord's specific leading of individual believers. Now, even though God's plans and directions for each believer aren't found in Scripture, the general principles for understanding them are here in the Word of God. God doesn't promise to show us His will through visions and, and coincidences or miracles, but He doesn't leave us guessing either. What God wants more than anything else is for all His children, for all His children, that they know and obey, that they know and obey His will, and He gives us every possibility to know and to obey it. So in closing, God's primary will is for every person is that he be saved through Christ, brought into his kingdom. God's will is also that we be, that, that be spirit-filled, as Paul goes on to teach in verse 18. We experience God's will by, by being sanctified, that is set apart from sin. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, being set apart, and we enjoy his will as we submit to God and others. Submission is believing that God is able to accomplish His will in my life through the people that He's placed in authority over me. That's an important definition of submission because it focuses on the attention, it puts the attention on God and not the person that's over you. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful words that you give us, Father. And Father, that you, Father, so wonderfully explain to us, God. Help us to be what we're called to be. Father, men and women of God who walk in the light, who obey the word of God. And Father, we praise and give glory and honor through our lips. And that no filthy language, God, should be found in our lives, in our mouths, Father. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time now as we partake in communion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Larry. this morning and so as you have your elements in hand and we prepare uh, to remember and celebrate our risen Lord and Savior Jesus at his table I want to talk to you about two words real quick certainty and confidence before I do that I want to pray Father we come to you this morning, Lord, and we thank you so much for this opportunity, my God. Thank you for the message this morning, Lord, to be imitators of God. Father, this morning, my God, I just want to pray for the communion as we gather together at your table, Lord, that you, through the word of God, would impart certainty and confidence in our walk with you and in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm sure you're aware, you know, today, 
the year we live in today that um, there's very little certainty, very little certainty in this uncertain world, you know. Um, so, and even as we approach 2024, more uncertainties will arise. So, uh, you know, I'm gonna, some of the uncertainties we face, you know, are like, you know, when we buy a car, we're uncertain that it will continue to work. So we buy uh, a warranty. We buy a warranty for the confidence that it will be repaired quickly. And then we buy auto insurance because of the uncertainty of uh, not being in an accident. No one wants to be in an accident, but we're all uncertain that we can not, we won't be in an accident either no fault of our own or someone else. And appliances, you know, even, even Maytag is uncertain. My wife owns uh, Maytag appliances, but she bought uh, service warranties because nowadays, you know, the Maytag repairman uh, isn't as bored and lonely with nothing to do as he was in our parents' day. You, some of you remember that commercial, right? Cars and appliances, you know, they're, they're simple, common uncertainties, but there are more serious uncertainties that we have in life that we need to face, you know, like health. We can't be certain of our health, so we acquire protection of the high cost of medical care in the event of illness or injury with health insurance. And then there's life itself. We have no certainty of the number of days that God will allow us to be pilgrims on this earth. We're only certain that He's the one who knows the number of days, but as far as will I live to be 70? Will I live to be 90? Will I live to be 120? Will I live to be, you know, we, we're, we are so uncertain. So we purchase life insurance. So to not leave our loved ones with our debt. And what about terror and crime? You know, ever since September 11th, 2001, the uncertainty of our government to prevent another attack looms in our minds. And then crime itself. Are you certain you can walk down any street at any time of the day? You know, I stop for coffee every morning at the local uh, Yum Yum Donuts. At, well, I get there about 4.15 on my way to work. I stop, I get out, I look around, I see the hangers around. I'm like, oh man, these are some uncertain characters. So I go in real quick. You know, I have my $2.29 laid on the counter. The guy sees me, he already knows, has my medium coffee ready. And I'm out of there. But as I'm in there, I'm looking around because there's a lot of hangers around that, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. I've had some dangerous encounters before, so... That's what makes me a little at ease. But I need my coffee that early in the morning. You know, you can't... You know, we, we hear it all the time. We hear it all the time about the dangerous times. You know, it's said, we live in uncertain times. But if I were to ask you today, is there anything in life you can be certain of? I can see all your smiles because you guys all wear smarty pants. You're thinking... Oh, sure, you can be certain of death and taxes. 
True, that's, that is true, okay, but is there anything beyond death and taxes that you can be certain and have confidence in? You know, you can't be certain about government, you can't be certain about people, you can't be certain about anything physical or material, you know, plain and simple. There's just, there's just no guarantees in the physical and material. With that being said, I want to point you to who and what is certain that you can have the most absolute confidence in. Can you please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5? Starting in verse 11, it reads like this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written, in verse 13, he continues, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Psalm 19, verse 7 tells us in the New King James Version. And the NLT says, the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy. You know, when you go to court, you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you give your testimony, and the jury is dependent upon you to be honest, forthright. But life has shown us through experience. You can watch a trial on TV, or you've perhaps been in court, and you know the situation that's going on, and you've seen people lie in their testimony. Well, God is not man that he should lie. So it says right here that his testimony, the testimony of the Lord is sure. You know, verse 10 said of uh, John chapter uh, 5, that God gave us testimony. And verse 11 says the testimony we receive from God is a gift. And that gift is eternal life in his son. So, that gift of life is only for believers, born to be born again believers, not the unregenerated type. You know who are the born again believers? Perfect with with Pastor Joe just taught this morning, imitators of God, and who are not the born again believers, the unregenerated, the ones who practice lawlessness. So the Apostle John, you know, he wrote this letter so that we who believe can have certainty. He wants our minds to be certain, certain about Christ, certain about salvation, and certain about eternal life. He said, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So we who are born again have the Spirit of God living in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, and as we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our 
great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul writes to Titus. So, but while we wait, we have problems. We wrestle against our flesh. We have great issues of concern that need to be addressed. But John lets us know that we have the freedom of speech to ask God, according to his will, anything in prayer for whatever we need. He says in verse 14, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That word confidence means freedom of speech. The ability to ask God boldly according to his will. We're able to ask him boldly knowing that he hears. So John can impart, he can impart this certainty and confidence to us because remember he was with Jesus when Jesus promised in uh, John chapter uh, uh, 15 when he promised excuse me when he promised us um, verses uh, 14 to 16 he said you are my friends if you do whatever I command you be imitators of God right do what he commands you he says no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So that's the confidence. That's the certainty that John wants us to remember this morning. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're his servant, if you're an imitator of God, if you're born again and you're struggling in life, I know I'm right. To be, I'll, I'll confess to you, uh, I'm in a season right now where I need a lot of certainties in my life. You know, uh, I need a lot of confidence in my life because the pressures that I'm going through in this particular season of my life, and I need that confidence. And I can't find it in man, I can't find it in my government. Even my wife, whom I love dearly, I can't find it in her. All I can look is up. And that's where my certainty, that's where my confidence comes from. Amen? Amen. So let's prepare to partake of the elements together. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the broken bread. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, as often as you drink it, in remembrance 
of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let us partake of the cup. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we come to celebrate you, Lord, and to remember you, what you did, the full debt that you paid for our sins, the breaking of your body, the shedding of your blood for each and every one of us that you called. We were lost without hope, but you called us by name. You called us, you saved us, you restored us, you sanctify us, you are sanctifying us, you indwell us with your Holy Spirit. We are so grateful this morning for all that you do, Jesus, and all that you have done and all that you have accomplished throughout history and even personally in our own lives. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I've got a few announcements I want to make. Um, starting on Tuesday, Tuesday at, uh, I'm going to need my glasses for the small print here. Starting on Tuesday at uh, 7 p.m., uh, standing in the gap with Pastor Tony, where the church meets uh, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. We gather for prayer, and now they're meeting here in the sanctuary. You know, standing in the gap. Um, how many of you have ever stopped a bully from picking on someone? Or, you know, you, yeah, okay, I see a few hands. You know, you, you jump in, right? I mean, you see a bully, you know, you see someone being abused by a bully and it's like that's not right you know and and um, i always crack up because tony always pastor tony always cracks up at me when it comes to praying for one another you know um my dad taught me and my brother that whenever you fight you see your brother fighting jump in no matter what and the same thing i use that application in church a brother tells me hey bro i need prayer jump in i pray pray so that's what standing in the gap is we pray for the church we pray for the needs So if you feel the need to come out on Tuesday, jump in. Jump in for your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. Then on Wednesday night, we're back here for Bible study. As Pastor Joe continues in his series with Ezekiel, chapter 13, the title is uh, False Prophets.